chapter 3, a simple way to get to Lamentations is to turn to a big prophetic book that should be in the middle of your Bible, Jeremiah, and turn one book to the right and you'll be in the correct spot. We have, for many months now, of course, been working our way slowly but surely through the book of Genesis, and we take a break this morning uh, to come to Lamentations, and Lord willing, the next time uh, that I am with you preaching, we'll continue on in our study of the Bible's first book, but I thought it would be wise this morning to uh, come to a text that you could rightly call the Christian's hope in times of hardship. There are few texts in Scripture that so summarize the Christian's experience in times of suffering, but also the Christian's hope in times of suffering, like Lamentations chapter 3. You can take this even as a creed, as a confession for this calamity of sorts that we find ourselves in. And so I'm going to focus most of our attention on verses 22 through 24, But we will give some attention to the first 21 verses because we want to know uh, something of the emotional tone and the despair even that the prophet feels in this moment here in Lamentations chapter 3. And so uh, let me just read verses 1 through 24 and then I'll pray for our time and then we'll begin our study together. Uh, Let us hear now as our God of faithfulness speaks to us once again through his word. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear. Lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I've become a laughingstock of all the peoples, the object of their taunts all the day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings. The wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it. And is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. 
And thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us bow our heads once again in prayer together. Father, we thank you that you shine light into darkness. That you comfort hearts that are in despair. That you nourish minds with truth that are struggling to trust. Renew us, we pray, in the spirit as we come to your word. That we might again take this as our confession and creed. Great is your faithfulness. Minister to us by the Spirit and Word this morning that we might be built up in Christ-likeness, that we might be restored in our faith, that we might abound in thanksgiving in all circumstances, even in an epidemic like ours. So give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was in the late 15th century that many of the European powers on the continent at the time were engaged in this age of exploration. It was a time when they were exploring new worlds, they were exploring new routes of trade, new passages across the sea, and in 1488, a Portuguese explorer by the name of Bartholomew Dias, he set his way down south along the western side of Africa, and eventually he got to the bottom tip of Africa, to this southern part of South Africa, and he came to this cape that was full of storms, unexpected thunder and lightning, these mighty massive waves that were threatening the ship, these unexpectedly strong currents. And so eventually he made his way back towards Portugal and was recounting the trip to the government authorities and those that had financed his trip. And he told about this Cape experience at the southern tip of Africa. And he named that place the Cape of Storms. But it wasn't long after that that his king, King John II, renamed the Cape because he realized that what Diaz had done is he had opened up a, a new route to the east, a new route to prosperity, to blessing, even to glory. And so he changed that name from the Cape of Storms. King John instead called it what we often refer to it now as the Cape of Good Hope. And it's true, isn't it, that there are many times in life when it seems like you have to sail through the storm in order to get to the hope, that you have to go through the hardship in order to get to the glory that awaits on the other side. And that's certainly what's in mind here of the prophet in Lamentations chapter 3. He has sailed into a storm of immense destruction and desolation, and now he must get through to hope and we see him get through this morning to that hope in his hardship, particularly in verses 22 through 24. So Lamentations is one of those books, isn't it, that many Christians maybe aren't too familiar with. And if they're familiar with any part of it, it's probably this section that we're going to focus on this morning in Lamentations chapter 3. As best we can tell, this was a book written by the prophet Jeremiah. It was a book written at the moment of the southern kingdom of Judah's desolation and destruction at the hands of Babylon. Uh, we know that Jeremiah had ministered during this time with incredible compassion and care, often crying out to God, even as we see him in this book. He's complaining to God. 
He had warned the nation of God's coming judgment upon their sin. He had watched as the Babylonian armies surrounded the holy city of Jerusalem, lay siege to it for so long, eventually breaching the walls, coming into the city, destroying it, laying rock upon rock, and he even saw the holy temple raised to the ground. And as he looks in on all of this trouble, As he looks in on all of this strife, it's as though as he gets to the moment in Lamentations 3 where his heart is at its bottom pit of despair. But of course he doesn't stay there, does he? He finds truth there in his pit of despair. Truth that can lift out any soul that is in the midst of suffering and strife, hardship, trouble and testing. And so what I want us to see together this morning from this passage, mostly from verses 22 through 24, is reasons for hope in the hardship. Reasons for hope in the hardship. And he's going to give us three different reasons that I want to focus our attention on. And we should grant, shouldn't we, from the outset of this text is what we are experiencing with the outbreak of a virus in AD 2020 I truly can't compare to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. But of course, we do admit that we have experienced loss these last few days, these last few weeks. I mean, before my very eyes, I see the loss this morning as there's just a few people scattered about a room that sits north of 500 people. Almost every chair is empty. There's, there's loss that were not gathered together. Some of you know that you've lost some sense of stability and security in the midst of the uncertainty in our world right now. Oh, we know others of you have maybe potentially lost the means to provide for your family. Maybe your future prospects of providing for your family are Dreary, they are dim, they are altogether bleak, and you look out on the coming days, the coming weeks, and the coming months, and you genuinely feel this sense of loss in the midst of uncertainty. And so for sure then, God speaks to us through his word to restore us in faith, to renew us in hope, as he gives us three reasons for hope in the hardship. First, he is sovereign. We're going to see that in the first 21 verses. Not just that, he is steadfast. We see that in verse 22 and 23. And then finally, he is satisfying. That's verse 24. So if you want to know reasons for hope in this present hardship, three reasons from Lamentation chapter 3. God is sovereign, steadfast, and satisfying. So we begin with God is sovereign. Look again at verse 1. Jeremiah says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. So kids, you want to ask the question maybe here immediately of chapter 3 verse 1 is, who is the his that verse 1 references with this club of his wrath? Well, we don't have to guess, do we? If you just maybe flip the page back, look one verse up to the end of chapter 2, what you see is Jeremiah mentioned there in chapter 2, verse 22, the day of the anger of the Lord. The day of the anger of Yahweh. So what he's saying here is, I am this man under affliction who has seen Yahweh's wrath. 
And what I want to help you maybe see over the next 16 to 17 verses is how the prophet is totally certain about God's sovereignty in this moment. He has all certainty about God's sovereignty in the suffering. And it may strike you the degree of his certainty, maybe the way in which he even goes about it. Because look through these next many verses and notice this pattern of subject and action in verse 2 through 16. Jeremiah says, Yahweh has driven and brought me into darkness. Surely against me he turns his hand. Verse 4, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me. He has made me dwell in darkness. Verse 7, he has walled me about so I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear and a lion hiding in wait for me, according to verse 10. Continue on. He has turned aside my steps and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. Into my kidneys he drives those arrows. Verse 15, he's filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. And he has made me cower in the ashes. He has made this affliction. That's the certainty of the prophet's sovereignty of God in this moment. And I wonder if you are like him as you look about this situation that we find ourselves in the world today. And you can say with that degree of conviction and confidence, God has done this. And kids, what does it even mean that God is sovereign? Well, it does mean, doesn't it, that God controls all things, that God's in charge of all things. But understand from Lamentations chapter 3, the fullness of it, God controls the good times and the bad times. God controls the joys and the sorrows. God controls the victories and the defeats. He is sovereign. You know, I would imagine, like many of you, I've found extra hours in the course of a week that are freed up for various pursuits, particularly in my life the last week or so, is I've I've gotten lots of hours back late in the evening after the kids go to bed. I haven't had these meetings up at the church at night, no soccer practices along the way. And so so I've taken to read these series of whodunit mysteries that I've been meeting to get to for many months. Some of them are relatively recent. Others of them are actually quite old. And earlier this week, I was reading a classic one written in the 1920s with one published just a couple of weeks ago. And the one that was newer, it was like things are often paced these days and that kind of genre, it was faster moving. So I was more engaged with this one than I was with the old one. So I'd made it further to the end in the new one than the old one. Well, by the end of the old one, I'm sorry, the end of the new one, it referenced the old book that I was reading and gave away the whodunit nature of the mystery. And so then I went back to this classic one that I was reading. And of course, as you could probably imagine, I began to read each scene with new eyes and hear each part of dialogue with new ears. 
because I knew who did it. And if you understand God's sovereignty from Genesis to Revelation, the sovereignty that the prophet confesses here in Lamentations chapter 3, isn't it true that you see the world with new eyes? You hear the world with new ears because God has done And it is a difficult thing, isn't it, for many people to wrestle through how God can be sovereign over all things, even as Jeremiah so assuredly mentions here. Sovereign over darkness, desolation, despair, and destruction. But I don't think it's the right context to give a a long apology for how he can be sovereign over all these things and not ultimately thus be held accountable and responsible as the author of evil. But let me see if I can maybe just put a question, a stone, if you will, under your shoe as you think about the reality of God's sovereignty. Maybe you find this truth terrible. Maybe you find this truth quite troubling that God is sovereign over the good and the bad. If he's not sovereign over all things, why would you have any reason for hope? In the midst of hardship. If he's not sovereign over all things. Why would you have any hope of comfort. In the midst of calamity. Because what we see of course here is. The prophet recognize. God is sovereign. But it doesn't extinguish his hope. Even though in some ways it seems like it comes close to extinguishing the hope. Notice verse 19 through 21. He goes on to say, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it. That God is sovereign, he continually remembers it and it is bowed down within me, my soul. But, that great gospel conjunction that shows up all the time in the Bible. But, yet, this I call to mind and therefore I have So students ask the question, what's this that he calls to mind? What is it that he remembers that lifts his soul from despair, that picks up his head out of the ashes? Well, surely it is God's sovereignty because it seems to be what he alludes to in verse 20. But it is what really comes next in verse 22 through 24. It's the remembrance that not just that the truth isn't just that God is sovereign, But God is steadfast as well. For look at verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You might know that the original word for steadfast love here in verse 22 is quite famous for being difficult to fully capture in English. That's why So the ESV that I'm reading from has it as steadfast love. You might have a King James in front of you that calls it mercies. The NIV version would call it great love. Somewhat famously, the New American Standard Bible renders it as loving kindness. It's such a massive term about God's love for his people that we have a hard time communicating it in English. It's this loyal and lasting love. It's this covenant and comprehensive love. It's this full and for, forever love. It's, it's so large that even Paul will say, That we need strength to comprehend it. God needs to give us might in order that we might be able to to grasp this love. Which knows what? No height. No depth. No length. No breadth. This is the steadfast love of the Lord towards his people. 
But also there's a translation issue in the next part. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases is what my Bible says. More literally, it's because the steadfast love of the Lord, because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we are not cut off. We are not consumed. So so think about how that must have been for Jeremiah as he looks around the rubble and the ruin in Jerusalem. Doesn't everything about him seem to shout, you have been cut off. You are consumed. And yet Jeremiah realizes, doesn't he? He's still breathing. He's still living. And it's only because of God's steadfast love that he's not consumed. That God's people are not cut off. Yes, they're carted off to exile in Babylon. But we know that they're not ultimately cut off. And it's because of God's steadfast love. Do you know that your sin means you should be cut off? You should be consumed. Yet you're watching this. You're listening to this. Because of God's steadfast love that never ceases. And it's not just his steadfast love, is it, that's unfailing. Verse 22 continues. His mercies never come to an end. The word there really is compassions. His compassions never come to an end. And why it's important to even emphasize the difference is because the word was originally a maternal term. It was used of a mother having compassion on a young child. The kind of mercy that a a young mother has on an infant baby. That's God's stance towards his people. That's the kind of maternal mercy he gives to us that never comes to an end. How do we know they never come to an end? Verse 23 continues, they are new. His mercies, his compassions, they are new every morning. You know, students, maybe a way to think about God's mercy, according to Lamentations chapter 3, is, is think about God's mercy like manna. Surely you know the story from the Old Testament wanderings of Israel. God provided for his people, didn't he? Each morning with this divine mystery bread called manna. Every day they woke up and there on the ground before their eyes, there in their hands was tangible evidence that his mercies are new every morning. Mercy is like manna, isn't it? We don't have to live today off yesterday's mercy. We get mercy today for today's troubles. We get mercy tomorrow for tomorrow's trials. You never have to live your life on past, previous mercies as though it's going to run out in the end because there's this bottomless ocean that awaits God's people. According to his steadfast love, we're not cut off. According to his mercies, we continue. You know, kids, maybe a way you could think about this steadfast love and mercy of God that sustains us and doesn't mean that we get consumed. If you think about a wildfire, you know, that breaks out along a forest that's near a large body of water. If you've ever seen this happen, is is inevitably the fire will eventually reach the shoreline. But you know, don't you, that it stops there at the shoreline. And everything in that large body of water is safe. The fish are safe. The plants are safe. They are not consumed. Because the body of water protects him from the fire. And it's in the same way that God's steadfast love, his, his mercy, is like this bottomless 
ocean of kindness and compassion that protects us, that provides for us in the midst of the fires that seek to consume us. So you could be listening to this and maybe you wouldn't say that you know the Lord of the Bible. That you're following even Jesus Christ. Might I ask you just a simple question? In times like this, what is going to sustain you? What are you hoping will provide for you? Who are you hoping will protect you? Do you have anyone to whom you can look that is completely reliable, even in the trouble? Do you have anyone to whom you can say, notice the end of verse 23, great is your faithfulness. You know, God's faithfulness in the ancient Israelite culture was one of their most cherished realities of Yahweh. You know, they were surrounded in these pagan countries, among these pagan people groups, with these pagan gods that were understood, even by their devotees, to be unreliable, to be unpredictable. And here comes Israel, and we say, Yahweh, our covenant-making, our covenant-keeping God, He is faithful. He is totally reliable. Even this language of faithfulness originally had the idea of steadiness. And it's why it's used in this story in Exodus chapter 17. Maybe you know the story of the Israelites fighting against the Amalekites. Moses, the mediator and redeemer of God's people, he goes up onto a hill. And you know, as the two armies are fighting with one another, when, when Moses has his hands up, the Israelites prevailed. But when Moses' arms dip because they're, they're tired and weary, the Israelites failed. And so Aaron comes along and lifts one hand. Hur comes along and lifts the other hand. And Exodus 17 verse 12 says, So Moses' hands were steady. So Moses' hands were faithful until the sun went down and the victory was won. Great is your faithfulness. So steady is God's hands towards his people that they hold us until the time of victory has come. And maybe you even notice how the prophet has gone, hasn't he, in verse 23, from speaking about God to speaking to God. He's talked about the steadfast love of the Lord. And now he says in verse 23, great is your faithfulness. He doesn't say great is his faithfulness. He says great is your faithfulness. How true it is that the gospel is often found in the pronouns. The ability of a person to personalize the gospel truth. You are faithful to me. Not just he is faithful to them. Great is your faithfulness. I wonder if you've even had a time, an occasion this week when you were thinking about the truth of God and you suddenly broke out into this personal meditation and prayer. Great is your faithfulness towards your people. Why can you hope amidst the hardship? He is sovereign. He is steadfast. Thirdly, in verse 24, he is satisfying. Notice how verse 24 begins. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. 
One of my favorite Puritan authors is named Thomas Brooks. I was rereading some of his works earlier this week and was reminded of an old sermon that he preached in 1662. And if you know anything about Puritan history, 1662 is an incredibly famous date in Puritan history. It was what became known as the Great Ejection, where some 2,000 Puritan ministers were ejected. They were cast out from their pulpits because they couldn't subscribe to the Book of Common Prayer in its entirety with a complete clean conscience. And so these men, they not only lost their congregations, they lost their pulpits, they lost their living, they lost their ability to provide for their families, but these Puritan men began to preach sermons, calling on texts like Lamentations chapter 3, sermons that unveiled an unusually strong trust in the sure and steady anchor that is Jesus Christ. So Thomas Brooks preached one of these sermons, and it was on Lamentations chapter 3 verse 24. And the title of that sermon was An Ark for All God's Noahs. An Ark for All God's Noahs. The Lord is my portion. This is truth that shelters a soul in the storm. This is truth that shelters a soul from the waves of worry. This is Doctrine, isn't it, that shelters the soul from the furious flood of trouble. The Lord is my portion. And you see again, don't you, the pronouns? It's not the Lord is his portion. The Lord is her portion. The Lord is their portion. The Lord is even our portion. It's the Lord is my portion, says my soul. I wonder if you can say that today. The Lord is my portion. You know, you can be certain when you go into seasons of life, like the one in which we find ourselves today, that the Lord means for this kind of a struggle, this kind of suffering, to do all kinds of things in our lives individually, even in our church collectively. Surely billions of things God intends to happen through this simple virus outbreak, and we may only ever know just a couple of those things. But we can trust that what God is doing in times like this is giving us a window into our own soul, because it's not until we get to testing times that we understand the true nature of our trust. We understand where our deepest struggles lie. We understand where we need to mature, where we need to grow. Could it not be that maybe even this week, It's been a window into what your true portion really is. What your choicest portion really is. Maybe as God is stripping away certain things, you're realizing that the choicest portion in my life is actually financial security. It's occupational stability. It's just the rhythms of life that bring comfort. And I don't mean this with any sense of triteness. I've even wondered in recent days if, if God is not using this in our context in North Texas to expose how even for so many, something like sports is the choicest portion. When viewing sports, participating in sports has evaporated, altogether vacated from the scene and many people don't know what to do with their lives. Could it not be just showing where our choicest portion really lies? 
But kids, do know today that through trusting in Jesus Christ, who of course himself is the Lord, you can say this day, you can say tomorrow when you wake up, you can say this evening and tomorrow evening when you lie down at night, the Lord is my portion. And this is reason for hope, isn't it? Look at the end of verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Lancelot Andrews was Queen Elizabeth's favorite preacher in the late 1500s. He's been called the greatest preacher in all of Anglican history. And in 1594, he came to the Northampton court to preach before the monarch. And he took as his text what is one of the shortest texts in all the Bible from Luke 17. Remember Lot's wife. And as he's preaching to the queen, as he's preaching to the royal court, he says, preachers are God's remembrancers. Now, that might not make a whole lot of sense to us because we don't have this actual vocational job-like role of remembrancers in the 21st century. We have cloud storage that remembers things for us. But what you would get in the ancient royal courts is an actual official role of a remembrancer who was supposed to know at a second's notice the decrees of decades and centuries past, the laws that were governing the land at the moment, even something as simple as the current bank accounts of the royal family. And Lancelot Andrews says, preachers are the Lord's remembrancers. Because isn't it true that what preachers so often are doing isn't really telling people something they don't already know. It's simply helping people remember what they must not forget. That's exactly what Jeremiah is doing in this passage. He's not telling us anything. I'm sure for so many of us, he's not telling us anything that we don't know already. But he's helping us remember things that we must not forget. God is sovereign. God is steadfast. God is satisfying. You see, his hope is hanging by a thread, isn't it? Look at verse 17 once again. He says, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Look at verse 18. My endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. But this, verse 21, I call to mind. This I recall. This I remember. And therefore I have hope. So what I want to do as we begin to close is just meditate very briefly on two final things that I want you to remember. Two things that we must recall lest we forget. Number one, in the midst of hardship, remember God's character. Isn't that exactly what he's doing throughout this passage? Remembering who God is. Not just what God has done, but who God is in his nature. When Jeremiah feels that God is far away, he remembers that God is near. When Jeremiah thinks that God is going to destroy him, he remembers that God sustains him. When Jeremiah thinks that it's all hardship, Jeremiah remembers he is faithful and steadfast in his compassions. I'm sure there's a truth about God's character. There's an attribute of God that you need to meditate even on today as you think of the coming week. In the midst of hardship, remember God's character. Secondly and finally, in the midst of hardship, remember God's Son. Remember God's son. Jesus actually used the language of verse 24 in his ministry. It's a rather famous story, isn't it? In Luke chapter 10. He comes into the home of Mary and Martha. 
these two women following him, these two women who were disciples of of this rabbi that was turning the world upside down. And you know the story, Jesus comes into the house and Martha is bustling about. You know, she's getting the house ready, getting the food all sorted out for Jesus. But she can't find Mary anywhere. She can't get Mary to do anything because Mary's there at Jesus' feet, listening to the master's teaching. And eventually, Jesus says to Martha, doesn't he? Martha, Martha, you are greatly troubled and anxious about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. She's chosen me. Your heart may too be troubled about many things. Your heart too may be anxious about many things. See today, hear today, remember today God's Son, Jesus Christ, who is the good portion. The Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the eternal Son of God, He came To be born of a virgin named Mary. To live a perfect life that we should have lived. He hangs there on the cross at Calvary. And all of the destruction, all of the desolation that marked Jerusalem at this time in Lamentations chapter 3. He brings it all into his heart. He drinks the cup of bitterness. He takes the wormwood and the gall. It pleased the Father, didn't it? To bend his arrows. To bend his bow. And strike the arrows of judgment into his son's heart. For you and me, that we might be able to say, He is my portion. You have reasons to hope, don't you? God is steadfast, God is satisfying, God is sovereign. Do you remember that old Reformation era catechism? Question number one that asks, What's our only comfort in life and death? My only comfort is that I am not my own, but I belong in body and soul, in life and death. My only hope is in my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we need our trust restored. Perhaps even some in our congregation this week have like Jeremiah lifted up a holy lament unto you. Help our struggles to push through to your steadfastness. Our anxiety push through to your sovereignty. Our hardship bring deeper hope. In Jesus Christ. For his mercies fail not. His steadfast love knows no end. Great is his faithfulness. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.